This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it's a great privilege to be sitting down with David Jackman, sitting here at the London Preachers Conference. Now, David, where are you based now? Well, I'm based down in Eastbourne on the uh, Sussex coast uh, as of last July, in fact. So we've been in London for 28 years, but have finally escaped. Well, it's a beautiful part of the world, isn't it? Oh, it's a lovely part of the world. The views are fantastic. We sort of yo-yoed between London and Eastbourne and gradually more of the yo-yo was in Eastbourne than London. And so last summer we felt, well, this before we get too ancient, before we can actually, you know, make new relationships and get into a new situation, now's the time to move. But it was hard leaving London. We knew it would be, but um, mm. uh, we're beginning to feel a bit settled and getting into things there. Mm. Yes, That's really good. And and you lived in London for twenty eight years. And prior to that, I've heard, having heard you speak today, uh, you were at Trinity College in Bristol at one place. Where else did you? Where did you come from originally? Yes, well, from Bournemouth originally. So oh. I'm a South Coast man, really. Uh, so I grew up in Bournemouth, and um, then after university, I didn't go back to Bournemouth. But I started out teaching, but in another South Coast town, I was in Portsmouth, uh, teaching at uh, Portsmouth Grammar School there. Mm. And then the Lord uh, fished me out of that into working with UCCF, mm-hmm. uh, and I was with them for six years in London, mm-hmm. after which I realised I wasn't going to go back to school teaching mm. and uh, on into ministry. So trained at Trinity Bristol. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there went to Above Bar Church in Southampton. Mm-hmm. So Bournemouth, Portsmouth, Southampton, all along the South Coast. <laughs> yes, really. indeed, yeah. And UCCF, when were you at UCCF? Uh, 68 to 74, long time ago. You must have had, been around Lloyd-Jones and Stott yes. and various... Yes, others. that's right, yes, yes. Um, I Yes, because and it was a hot time for student work because it was, 68 was the time of the student riots and... Uh, um, all sorts of interesting things. Uh, they, they were based in Bedford Square in London in those days, the UCCF. It was just mm-hmm. before they moved to Leicester. Mm-hmm. And then after that, of course, to Oxford. But uh, when I was in UCCF, we were in Bedford Square and right in the thick of it all, really. Wow. University land in London. Uh-huh. Student protests out my, outside my window uh, against Ma- Margaret Thatcher, milk snatcher, really? things like that. Back in the, <laughs> at that time, Back in the early 70s, you know, when she mm. took the school milk away. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, uh, yes. Wow. And, and, Exciting and, times. Yeah. And uh, so who was leading UCCF back then? Oliver Barclay. Uh-huh. He was the uh, he was the Gen Sec in those days. And... Um, I worked with him. My role was to be knowing a little bit about what was happening in all the university Christian unions, of which there were 52 in those days. And we had a staff team. We had, I had seven men who worked with me who were called traveling secretaries for good reason, really, because they traveled to lots of different universities. So the 52 universities had seven men and six women staff members working with them. And uh, I used to go out from London and visit them and uh, escape from the office as frequently as possible and mm. uh, do, you know, ministry in different university contexts. Mm. So it was a mm. great privilege, really, to yes. learn a lot through doing it. Yeah. And at that time, I imagine uh, Schaefer will have been uh, fresh and doing the breeze, that happened? Yes. Uh, I mean, Escape from Reason came out just at about the beginning time, I think, of my period with UCCF. Um, IVF as it was then called mm. and uh, I mean Schaefer has been a big influence in my own life really mm. Mm. and uh, he was ah, he's an amazing man he was a prophet before his times really wasn't he I mm. don't think 
people really understood what he was saying um, at that stage. And uh, I think, you know, how things have developed since then have shown the wisdom of a lot of the things he was he was highlighting at that point in, mm. in uh, history. Yeah. I had never had the privilege of going to Labrie, so I didn't know him personally, but I encountered him through the books as they came out, you know, over the years. And mm. sometimes I wasn't too sure what greatness was saying to me, but uh, I gradually began to understand it better, I think. And I found it very liberating mm. because I'd, I'd grown up in a Christian tradition, but it was quite pietistic and quite ingrown, really, and uh, all sorts of suspicions about culture and in inverted commas you know and what's going on in the world around and mm. I think very often in that sort of tradition certainly in the 50s 60s the the key verse was come ye out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing which meant you know don't have too many non-christian friends and immerse yourself in the Christian culture mm-hmm. which of course you need to do if you're going to grow but it was a sort of exclusivism from mm. which I found him very liberating Gosh, really how interesting mm. and uh, and of course doing UCSCF work there will have been an evangelistic push oh yes very much so yes I mean the Christian unions are there to present the gospel on the campus really mm. and uh, so yes was there someone who who pushed that as it were pushed the push was it was Oliver Barclay the one uh, who was yes, your yes yes I think so I mean I think from the beginning um, the IVF movement was there to present the claims of Christ to the university so evangelism was always the number one concern um, for some people, perhaps the Christian unions were almost a church substitute, but we tried to work very hard against that mm. and uh, to get the, the students into local churches in their university towns. Mm. But to be, you know, the salt and light on campus uh, and to see that as their primary sphere of Christian life and witness, mm. really. It's always attractive, of course, for Christians, students to get into the local church and regard it almost as a sort of refuge from mm. the hard life on the campus uh-huh. with all the demands that it makes. But mm. our job was always to try and say, well, you invest in the church on Sunday, but you're on the campus, you know, six days a week right. and get the churches to support them. So mm. we had a an organization called Ministers in University Towns, which comes out as mutts. And <laughs> <laughs> John Stott was very involved in getting that started. And we used to try to encourage the ministers to work in that, that sort of context. Right. Now, Dick Lucas told me that uh, John Stott was a, such a leader in his time. Mm. And he would say things to Dick, oh, you shouldn't do that, you should do this. And Dick would say, you're so right. And he'd... he'd did you know him? Did you hear um, a little? That? I mean, I got to know him through the UCCF uh, years, and um, he actually put me on to studying at Trinity Bristol. <laughs> so for me, I mean, that sort of aspect of John Stott's leadership came when I knew that I was going to be leaving UCCF and. I had a place to study at Trinity Deerfield in the USA. Gracious. Um, and uh, I knew I needed some good theological training. And But it was proving difficult to see how he could do it financially and how mm. it might work out by then I was married and had beginnings of the family. Mm. And um, John Stott said to me, well, what do you think you get in Trinity Deerfield that you wouldn't get at Trinity Bristol? And so I said, well, I don't know because I'm not an Anglican and uh, I don't, you know, it's an Anglican college. And he said, oh, I'm... By then, Alec Mortier was the principal and Jim Packer was there. And he said, oh, I'm sure they'd, they would want to take. In fact, he said, I know they would like to have a few non-Anglicans sort mm-hmm. of leaven the lump or something like that. <laughs> and so he was the one who put me on to Trinity Bristol, which was absolutely marvellous. The two years, I only had two years there, but they were wonderful years. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so hearing you speak today, you're, you're referencing things you heard from Packer and Matteo back yeah. then. Yes, back and, in the uh, mid seventies. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. striking. And and Matteo's Isaiah commentary. I was talking to a, someone who was coming to teach on Isaiah at London Seminary in uh, last year, and he said, "Oh, Matteo is the great one on Isaiah." And hearing yes. people who've worked their way through his Isaiah, yeah. they seem to see it as like a watershed moment in their life. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, I, I, he gave me my love for the Old Testament really, really, and taught me how to study the Old Testament. I mean, it was an amazing. Amazing privilege, really. Mm. When he went into his study, his principal, of course, that when he went into his study, he had this big sort of high-ceilinged room with a huge fireplace. And all along the mantel shelf of the, of the fireplace, there were these little green binder files, smallest size you could get, with sort of like a, um, like a Philofax-sized page. And it was full of notes on Isaiah, oh, really? which he had accumulated over the years, which eventually became the big commentary. But, I mean, it was a lifetime study with him. Great. Amazing. Yeah. Because he also did great work in the Psalms, didn't he? That book, put that book out about the rock. I forget the name. Yes. Yes, that's right. And Tim Keller says that his stuff on... His, his way of finding Jesus in the Psalms, yes. he saw it as a reference point for that whole uh, approach, which, of course... Uh, has been so beneficial and in our time people are getting yes, it better yes yes i think that's true yes, yeah, yes. again perhaps like a like schaefer you have a, someone who's ahead of his ahead of the curve there as yes. well as having packer how extraordinary <laughs> and so you'd sit sit at the feet of packer from two o'clock till six o'clock on a monday afternoon oh really <laughs> <laughs> yeah he'd start at two with the doctrine of god or something like that and then three o'clock would be say sin and salvation a uh, 10 minute coffee tea break and then we do something like puritan theology and maybe something on prayer the last hour and i mean those are the notes that i've gone back to over the years really all of them in those days of course they were on those old uh, duplicators the ronio where you turn the you know purple print yes that's right and he had pink paper oh. so all his notes from pink it's very good because you never lose them in your file <laughs> So, uh, no, that was a huge privilege to sit at his feet, really. But uh, I've jumped ahead of myself, because how is it you came to hear the gospel yourself? Well, I had the great privilege of being taught it from the beginning, really, in my family, so Christian family. My grandfather, on my mother's side, her father, was uh, a brethren evangelist who was converted through someone stopping him in the street in Reading, where he lived, when he was completely without any Christian faith. And... uh, Uh, someone from the local Brethren Assembly who made a friend of him and brought him to know the Lord. And very soon after that, as I understand it, he felt God was calling him to preach the gospel. And he did that for decades, really. He worked with a brethren group called uh, the Counties Evangelistic Association. still going, aren't you? It is still going, yeah. And he was the Counties Evangelist for Berkshire and Hampshire. And he uh, planted lots of little assemblies in those uh, counties through his missions that he held. He'd roll up with his gospel caravan, uh, early sort of um, uh, traction engine type thing, I think. And uh, he would um, uh, set his tent up on the village green, as you could in those days, and preach the gospel for three weeks. And uh, out of this, some of these assemblies were... And I've had the privilege of preaching in them when I was a young man, um, you know, that were founded through my grandfather's ministry, which was was a lovely thing, wonderful thing. So anyway, uh, my mother, therefore, came to faith as a child, and um, my father was... um, 
His father, my pater uh, paternal grandfather, was converted through my maternal grandfather's mission. So, <laughs> so uh, the whole Jackman family came to faith really through my mother's father and his evangelistic outreach. And so I was reared from that point on really in, in the gospel from, mm. from the beginning and came to trust the Lord as a child. I, I do believe very clearly that was the, the real moment at which I was born again. Mm. Probably I was seven or eight roughly at mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, as you grow and reach the teenage years, there are various crises, I think, that hit many children in Christian families. You know, is this really my faith? Is it? Uh, if it is, then I've got to take it more seriously than I have done. Am I going to live by this, stand up for this, and commit myself publicly to it? And um, I don't think I ever had any real doubts about it at that time because I knew it was so real to my parents and the life that they lived and I saw it sort of being lived authentically mm. by them um, but then uh, for me being baptized coming from that sort of free church background believers baptism was a major confession of Christ publicly you know this is who I am I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus and mm. um, so for me around about 15 I guess I was at that stage and um, then moved on from there and learned a lot of things following but that mm. was that that was the sort of foundation that the Lord very kindly and graciously gave me and I do mm. thank God for it because mm. it's a huge privilege really well yeah. I've heard that Dick Lucas said that between the wars it was the brethren who kept the uh, evangelical kept flame. The flag flying. Mm. Yeah. And an amazing commitment. I mean, they weren't, my, my grandfather was full time. He, he would have said he lived by faith. I mean, he depended on the Lord to, to meet his needs. But I think the fact that they did that, I mean, he would tell stories of him walking miles and miles and miles to preach because he had no, you know, at one point he had no um, car or anything like that. This was the 30s. They didn't have the money for things like that, but he was prepared to do that. Mm. And I think that sort of dedication, you know, that really is, um, it has tremendous power in showing you that this is this is really what yes. these people believe in this is authentic this is yes. not just a job that's being done or yes. a role yeah. that they want to fulfill so you were, you were led to, to to the gospel early on uh, as a child were you one of several children no i'm the only one mm -hmm. um so i'm i'm a child born out of due time in a way <laughs> because my parents were married for 15 years and i think they thought we never would never have children oh, really? uh, so i was born um to not elderly parents, but they have been married for quite a time, and yeah. I'm the only one. Oh, really? <laughs> so it's just interesting. Yeah. I don't read anything much into that, but it was uh, well. The, I read into it the Lord's timing in it, because right. He decides where He wants you to be in the grand sort of flow of history, doesn't He? And yes. I could have been a good deal earlier, I guess, but in God's goodness, I was born during the war. Yeah. yeah. And then you, you ended up at, uh, at Trinity, and then uh, you went on to uh, you were saying Southampton. Yes, after Trinity, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, to Above Bar Church, which is a city centre independent evangelical church where Leith Samuel was the minister mm -hmm. uh, and had been for 25 plus years. And uh, he asked me uh, to go and be his assistant on a one-year appointment. Um, and we ended up being there for 15 years in total. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he paid you for more than one year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they certainly did. They were very kind to us. <laughs> And you were there for 15 years, and did you become minister? Yes. I worked with Leith for three, mm -hmm. and uh, then he retired, and I took over from him. So I went through various sort of metamorphoses, really. I was assistant minister for a year, and then they had enough confidence to make me associate minister for a year. 
and then he announced that his retirement was coming up. So I was then minister-elect for a year, which sounds like a role from the Mikado, really, as <laughs> daughter-in-law-elect. Yes. But um, it was helpful, really, for the church, I think, because they'd had long pastorate. Leith had been there total 28 or so years. And before him, the previous pastor had been there 42 years, from 1911 to 1953. Yes. So, you know, they weren't in the... Uh, they weren't familiar with calling a minister really and I think he realized that and steered things you know obviously the church made the decision because in those sorts of churches you're appointed by the congregation but it was very helpful and they knew what they were what they knew to some extent what they were getting by asking me to follow him and Mm. I knew the church three years experience of it which Mm. was helpful really Mm. Mm. and then you came to London and were involved in the Cornhill training course which has been a, a an establishing ministry for a generation of preachers. Yes, uh, it's 30 years now, now, almost. Cornhill's an interesting one. It, it came out of concerns that a number of us had who'd worked on UCCF staff and who were in free church ministry situations. And we used to meet together several times a year just for a, a day together, stimulus and encouragement and challenging one another to keep on doing the things that we knew mattered most. Very good. And um, we called ourselves the free thinkers because we were free churchmen who wanted to think. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, out of that, there came the desire to try and encourage a younger generation of serious Bible teachers. There were lots of alternatives on offer in the 80s there were lots of exciting things that seemed to be happening but some of them were driving preaching out of the church and Mm. was regarded as less significant and you know ah people were looking for new methodologies which sometimes meant almost new messages Mm. the sort of thing we now call the prosperity gospel is Mm. perhaps dominating um so we thought well maybe we should have a conference to uh, get together a group of free church people where would we have it we'd like to have it in central london and somebody said, oh, Dick Lucas, you know, he has a church attached to St. Helens, St. Andrew's Undershaft, and maybe he'd let us use it. Well, I got to know Dick through UCCF and also through Keswick, where I was quite involved at the time. And so I rang him up and he said, yes, of course you can have it. And afterwards, uh, we had about 50 people, I think, came to the first one. Afterwards, he said to me, and I asked him, can we have it next year? Yes, but why should we do separately what we could do together? Oh, yeah because by then he'd started his Anglican Proclamation Trust as it became, his preaching conferences, you know, his workshops. Mm. Um, There was no Proclamation Trust at that point, that that came later. But what is now the Evangelical Ministry Assembly really started out of that conference at Mm. St Andrew's Undershaft before the Proc Trust itself began. But both uh, our little group and Dick and his group were both feeling the same sort of um, necessities really I think given the, the current situation in the early mid 80s and um, then once Proclamation Trust began in 1986 and I got involved with him in that and the EMA uh, became much more a focus of things the Evangelical Ministry Assembly which started in that year then uh, we, we really tried to do together as much as we could and I said to my elders in Southampton I really think God is putting in my heart a burden to train a a new generation of younger preachers. Mm. And, okay, I don't want that to sound too grandiose. You know, maybe we could have four or five 
young men who come as associates or assistants and work with us in the church, interns, I think was the term I used from the American context. Mm. And they said, oh, well, no, I don't think that would work at all. That's not the right thing to be doing at the moment, which really surprised me. Mm. But in the providence of God, I see now why they said that, because uh, I say, well, okay, that's fine. I respect that. And I just prayed to the Lord, if this is all wrong, then please show me that I'm you know, barking up the wrong tree, really. Or if there is something in this, then would you open the door for me and show me how it can be done? I had no intention at that point of leaving above bar at all. But within, I suppose, two and a half, three years, I was invited by Dick Lucas to do a series of lunchtime services at St. Helens, November 1989, I think it was. And um, at the end of the series, which I now know was a sort of a hidden interview, <laughs> uh, he said, I'll come and have a cup of tea up in the kitchen. And he sat me down and said, are you going to spend the rest of your life in Southampton? So I said, well, tell me about it. <laughs> so he said, well, the Proclamation Trust wants to start a, a training course for preachers, and mm. we'd like you to come and run it. Mm. Well, I've been praying for three years that the Lord would show me if this was right or not. <laughs> so really, I mean, there was no difficulty in saying, mm. well, it's going to be a big upheaval leaving Southampton, but we, I believe that's the right thing to do. And mm. Heather and I, as we prayed about that, became sure of that. And so... In 91, we moved from above bar to the prop trust. And, and fascinating that at the behind, behind it, it's like the seed had already already been planted. Yes, yeah, very <laughs> You were much already so. pushing, and then the mm. door seemed to yes, open. Yes, that's right, the right door opened. Yes. And it, I mean, it was, a, it was a wonderful thing that happened, really. I mean, mm. it was a great answer to prayer, I yeah. thought. And also, what you're describing there is almost like a, a proto-gospel coalition, because... One of the beautiful things we see coming from um, America at the moment is people from many different backgrounds, different church denominations and so on, are working together for the big things. Mm. And it, it thrills me. You know, yes, so right. I think 20 years ago we couldn't have imagined that you would go to your group. And mm. then, but mm. but the thr- the, the, what concerns one is that so many of these very broad things, uh, they're so broad mm. that you miss the fundamentals. But what seems to have one the TGC guys together is they're all about the same thing yes the, the, the preaching of the gospel in the local church uh, for the yes. mission of the uh, of the Bible and uh, and they seem fascinating therefore if you want those priorities it seems all the other things just fall into place and you find oh we agree on that we agree on that we agree on this and that and it's a beautiful picture as well because there's a there's a corporation which is more than just on, on in name and what you're describing there is co-belligerence mm. with Dick, someone who you weren't on the same team as, but in, but with whom you were able to say, no, let's get in the trenches and get this done. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I think, uh, I think that's, in the goodness of God, that's something that Proclamation Trust has been able to contribute to the scene, you know, in mm. Britain, really. Yes. Because... You know, there was a the fact that we, the free thinkers, did it as free church people on our own indicates where we were. And the fact that Dick's initial conferences were for Anglicans, because there have been that Stott Lloyd-Jones division, mm. you know, uh, over whether you could stay in a mixed denomination, so-called or not. And although I think that was harmoniously settled between John Stott and Martin Lloyd-Jones, I don't think their followers settled it so easily. Mm. And there was quite a lot of division, really, amongst people who should have been united in the gospel, you know. Mm. So I think one of the spin-offs, never the intention of Proclamation Trust to make that its agenda particularly, Mm. 
but to make biblical preaching its agenda. But as right. you say, if the gospel's central, if the word of God is central, then these other things will tend to come together and like-minded brothers will see the value of working together rather than separately. Oh, well, may people hear this and be provoked by that mm. because there is so much decrying of the lack but there are not so many people pushing, mm. <laughs> saying, mm. let's do this, let's mm. do this. You mm. meet a few and you think, oh, you're like from another planet, and it's a <laughs> blessing and an encouragement. Now, of course, uh, what you're describing there also is something which we have seen examples of in earlier generations. I think of the, the Catholicity of John Newton. Have there been people in church history who've been particular encouragements, inspirations, companions? Um, well, I think... I mean, Calvin is, I suppose, my uh, constant companion, really. I've so often found, I mean, since I, since I was introduced to the Institutes, and that was probably through Trinity in Bristol, you know, and Jim Packer's um, emphasis on um, Calvinism with, with a small c in the sense that, you know, the principles of Reformed theology without it becoming uh, the, the sort of crusading thing that sometimes it becomes, which tends then to be separatist. Mm. But um, no, that would have been, that, uh, and I often find now, still, if I go to Kelvin's commentaries, mm. I find the help that I haven't found, you know, in my own study or perhaps in other commentaries, really. I, I think it is the most remarkable resource that he's left us, really. Mm. And amazing thing that, uh, that we still have it and it's so easily accessible to us. So mm. that would... That would be uh, one of the influences. Mm. Um, Is there a particular biography of his that you'd recommend? No, mm. no. I, I think um, the Institutes are wonderful yes. and greatly underused amongst Christians and not mm. really known very much yes. these days. We, so we used to run a course at Cornhill, which uh, Doug Johnson, my colleague, ran on sort of um, an introduction to the best bits of the Institutes, <laughs> partly because some of our students found it a little bit daunting to be asked to read you know, whole chunks, but what we tried to do was to take them on a journey through and sort of annotated reading and discussion and interaction about it. I think it was a the best way of teaching doctrine mm. that, that we, we tried various different courses and so on. I mean, you get some good modern books, like there's um, Bruce Milne's book, Know the Truth, which mm. is in a way a summary mm. of much of the teaching of the Institutes or, um, you know, there's some very good modern theologies around, but it's hard to beat Kelvin, I think, mm, uh, and mm. it's got that pastoral heart and that yes. warmth of application as well mm. as clarity of thought. And did you read the battles or the an earlier yeah, translation? Yes, yes. the battles, it reads to my mind, it reads like Packer. It's just so yes. accessible. Yes. And you think, and what frustrates one is when you when you meet people who call themselves Calvinists who haven't read Calvin, mm. and then they just think, well, I suppose I should be staunch without having actually read a man yes. who you can see such a rounded person. Yes, and, uh, and you see also this heart. Yes. His desire. I tend to think he'd be a bit disappointed to think we limited him to tulip. Yeah, I think he was. Yes, I, I think, think so. He was much more. He was about the glory of God. And he, he's a pastor theologian, isn't he? You know, and and he wants his people to share that passion for the glory of God. And I think that's what Reformed theology should be like. I mean, it should be God-centered, true, not sort of. Can you tick all the boxes oh, on my system? Yes, such a shame, such yeah. a shame when you see that. Yes, but he is a he's a fascinating companion. And then I, I suppose most of my other mentors have been much more recent ones. Really, I mean John Newton is one that I enjoy reading, but um, uh, and the sermons particularly. Schaefer, we mentioned earlier on. I would say that he'd been quite a big influence. Oh really? Uh, How interesting. On me in in just 
just that sort of liberation from the introversion and almost the sort of exclusivism of um, some forms of uh, conservative Christianity. You know? yeah, interesting. Right. Yeah. So heroes from history, uh, Calvin, and then the more recent Schaefer having an impact. Yeah, Schaefer, I think... Um, I think there was a period in when I was sort of struggling in a way to try to live the Christian life that I thought I ought to live and not really being very satisfied with myself and probably not very not rightly satisfied with God and with the Lord and uh, with his grace and I think Schaefer sort of lifted my vision really to see something more of the greatness of God and Mm. the glory of God and the fact that you know the perspective on this life. I think when you're young and you're you're sort of making, trying to make your way, find out who you are, what your work is supposed to be, and all those things, um, you do sometimes need an older Christian. And I only got it through his books. I didn't know him personally, but to give to you a vision of the greater uh, glory of God that you're caught up in, this great thing that is God's eternal purposes. You know. Yes. And um, I think that was quite liberating. And at the same time. Um, I think I was quite helped to see that there's only one person who can live the Christian life, and that is Christ. And therefore, that phrase, Christ in you, um, you know, and uh, not I, but Christ who lives in me, and all the in Christ terminology of the New Testament, which is very widespread through the Old Testament, suddenly started to come alive. But I think for me, the verse that was uh, really helpful was Colossians 3, 4, which says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, uh, we'll appear with him in glory. And that who is our life, Christ is our life. So it's not let go and let God in the sense of you don't have to do anything, but it is um, uh, draw upon those resources you've been placed in Christ and Christ is in you mm. and the dynamic to live the Christian life is in Christ through the ministry of the spirit within the believer and I think that really transformed my view of the Christian life I would mm. say that's it moves it from being the guy who's pushing the car along mm. to the car's engine carrying you ah. but you're you know you're committed to that and it's not it's not um, let go and let God but it is trust God and experience God's dynamism mm. in enabling you to, in your own little way, seek to live for his glory. Mm. Mm. So yeah. that was quite important. Indeed. And the, 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 you're implying, you're suggesting formulas and equations which all hinge at grace. They mm. all hinge at, and, and at graciousness. Mm. And is there a, someone who's lately you've read who you, you found... This guy, I think he's 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 getting some helpful stuff. Is there a commentary or some, something you recently read and you found? Oh, this is a good one. I've rediscovered Larry Crabb recently. Uh-huh. Interesting. Do you, uh, I mean, yeah. he was twenty years ago. He was he was writing. I think he's got a lot to say. I think in a way he's a bit like a Schaefer before his time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he was at the sort of the initial stages of the counselling movement, wasn't he? Yeah. And, I mean, his book Inside Out yes. and things like that. I've I've gone back to that recently, and I'm actually currently reading a book that he wrote called The Pressures Off, um, which is really the not-I-but-Christ mm. who lives in me sort of motif that runs through it. But I think that's quite important because I think he in that book Inside Out he has uh, an introduction that talks about the false hopes of modern Christianity, 
Mm. Uh, that really we will have, you know, that God is there to provide the blessings that we need to make our life just a little bit better and a little more secure than it would otherwise be. And it's his point, which we, we come up against often, you know, that we want the blessings more than we want the God who gives the blessings. Oh. And that the relationship with God that we have is the greatest of all the treasures that we could possibly have. And it's putting our putting our treasure there and putting our emphasis and our, our whole person into his hands for him to do what he wants to do in our lives, irrespective of what that may mean. And I think... I think the problem today is that our culture is so um, um, focused on self-fulfillment and on me getting the best possible life that I can live here and now. And look, God is here to give us those blessings plus heaven. But heaven is sort of very remote and distant and I want the blessings now. Whereas the verse we looked at this morning, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yes, he is in you now. That's the blessing. And he will work out what that means. Um, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get that job or you're, you mm. know, that, that's going to work out in the family or, or whatever. God has his plans. He knows mm. what's best for us. But it's the Christ in, in you who is the hope of glory. Mm. And I, I think the other thing I've learned over the years is that, you know, there used to be a saying when I was a young Christian that you're so, you can be so, earthly, uh, so heavenly minded that you're no earthly use. That's an absolute nonsense, I mm. think. So true. Um, you know, I mean, I think <laughs> our problem is we're so earthly minded, we're not much use to heaven in comparison. But if we can keep the Christ in you now, the hope of glory then, and that hope of glory motivating the dependence on Christ now, living for the glory of God now and experiencing the dynamism of his life within us, that seems to me to be where the satisfaction lies, really. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Excellent. Now, um, and uh, to what are you up presently, uh, David? Well, <laughs> I've just written, uh, completed a little book for Matthias Media called From the Text to the Teaching, uh, which is really a sort of how do you go about preparing a sermon type book. Uh, it's, a, it's a little booklet, which is um, Cornhill material, really, from the past. Um, but they seem to want to, they've, they've got a little series going on how to lead a group Bible study and they wanted something on preaching, um, the sort of methodology of sitting down with a text. What do you do from the moment you open the Bible to preach this text to the actual preaching of it um, mm. in, in, the, in the church or in the world or wherever it's going to be preached? Um, but I'm hoping to start fairly soon. I've been gathering material for quite a long time to try and write a book on teaching the Christian life. Mm. Um, so years ago, I was challenged by an American pastor who said to me, he was pastor of a very big church in America, what keeps me going is that I keep asking myself, what sort of people do we don't want to deploy Monday through Saturday um, through our ministry on Sunday? In other words, my Sunday preaching is geared to what sort of members of my church do I want out there in the world Monday through Saturday and myself Monday through Saturday and all the contacts I have you know what is it I'm trying to produce and I want to start from that and say okay so there's a lot of a uh, lot of us who are committed to biblical preaching expository preaching why well because it's the word of God etc etc yes but on the why what is it designed to produce? What is it that the New Testament tells us are the things that matter most? And how do we guarantee that in the preaching and teaching that we do, um, the things that the Bible is majoring on, we major on. We don't forget. We don't say, well, in the 21st century, these are the things. 
uh, from our culture. We've got to address the culture, but we address it through the unchanging truths of the scripture. Right. And so I want to try and explore that a bit and say, what is it we're in danger of leaving out in our preaching? Mm. What is it we're not learning today? I mean, I meet quite a few Christians, younger Christians, who say, well, I know I've been justified by God's grace. I know I've been forgiven, and I trust that that grace will bring me through to glory and um, those he justified, he glorified. But what's in between? Mm. And, uh, you know, what is my life about? Um, what are the values yes. I ought to have? Of yes. course I'm going to do a job, raise a family, all those things, but what, what are the real spiritual, eternal values in that? And how can we teach that? Um, through um, being aware in our biblical exposition of the sorts of issues that contemporary Christians are facing. So whether I can do it or not, I don't know, but I'm experimenting with that mm, at the moment mm. and trying to find a way of, of mm. presenting that. Well, so, with those priorities, it sounds glorious and having great potential. And finally, the, I'd like to ask, what advice would you give to people listening to this? Well, I love that thing that Rico Tice says, that as we go on in the Christian life, we realize more and more what great sinners we are mm. and more and more what a wonderful saviour the Lord Jesus is. Mm. And I think I would say, I mean, it's, it's classic, but keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep fixed on him. And you don't have to be him. He's the Christ, you're not. But you don't have to um, impress him. You don't have to bargain with him that if I do this will you do that mm -hmm. all those ways in which I think the enemy distorts our relationship yes and my advice would be to you know to value above everything else your personal relationship with God through Christ and the ministry of the spirit within us prompting us to deal with our sin to repent to turn to the Lord to be every day at the cross those sorts of things that are just the basics but they can so easily get eroded and yes. they don't they don't control the direction that we're traveling in and we become yes. concerned about you know the growth of our church or the effectiveness of our ministry or about all the problems that we're facing we become problem oriented rather than christ focused and i think if i've learned anything it is he must increase i must decrease and mm. that my eyes need to be fixed on him if i'm going to run the race um then that's what matters and mm. It's quite amusing because today I'm, when I preach in various places, I'm often wheeled out for an interview and people say, now you've been a Christian for so long, <laughs> such a long time, however do you keep going? Oh. But it's just a day at a time, isn't it? It's trusting Christ, it's seeking to be obedient, it's prayer and Bible study are the practical ways it happens, but um, and fellowship too and church life, all of those are, I mean, they're all the standard things. But it's almost as though we sometimes think, oh, that's just old hat. What's the new thing? Mm, yes. And um, so my advice would be don't get too excited about the new thing. Mm. Um, what you were saying earlier about it's what's written down here. That's mm. what matters. You mm. know, stick with what the Bible is saying. Mm. That's, that's the advice I would give because the other things will come and go but the word of the Lord endures forever. So that's, I think, what that's what I would want to make my yeah. my, my, my keystone, as it were. Yeah, very good. As Murray McShane said, rose early to seek the Lord. Who would not want to spend time in this company? Yeah. And like you're saying, when we try and, we try and 
square that circle what are we doing we're trying to avoid him mm. but we know that we do and we will do anything we can yes to it's because of the residual sort of sin isn't it yes. in us really and yes. our sinful nature that we yeah. think what pleases him most is serving him <laughs> and service has got to come from love of course it's an expression so of love true. for him so true and that's the thing to cultivate I think well it's been absolutely wonderful to have this time with you thank you so much David well thank you very much I've really enjoyed it for more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast and for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.